0: Hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking.
1: Thanks everyone for tuning in. I'm your host Amelia, and today we have a very exciting guest on the show. She's not only a junior doctor in intensive care at a major Melbourne hospital, but she's also studying biomedical engineering. So she's hitting a couple of those topics in STEM. I'd like to welcome to Avid Research, Shan. Thank you for having me, Amelia. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I was wondering if we could start with the simplest question, which sounds like it could be a bit of a long one for you. What is your job?
0: Well, my day-to-day job is working in an intensive care unit uh, in a hospital. This is The area of the hospital where we look after the very sickest patients, the type of patients that we would see are people who've had a major trauma, like being involved in a car accident, uh, who have had major burns, who have undergone open heart surgery, who have major infections, and of course, at the moment, who have COVID. The other thing that I'm doing at the moment is I'm a student, I'm learning biomedical engineering, so I'm studying how we can develop new technologies to help in intensive care and critical care medicine. Uh, so I'm hoping to be able to combine these two things in the future to be what we call a clinician scientist, which means a doctor who does research. And that's what I'm doing at the moment and what I hope to do in the future.
1: That sounds pretty awesome and also like pretty intense. Not, not trying to make a joke on intensive care, but it happened. So apologies. <laughs> Is, there, is that a common combination of skills? Like it doesn't sound like something there'd be a whole lot of people out there doing. It's
0: becoming more common at the moment, particularly since Australia has been moving towards having more graduate medical schools. We're getting people who have a wide variety of skills, particularly from their first degree. It, it's actually becoming more common to get people who have been engineers in the past or even lawyers, physiotherapists, nurses, And of course, biomedical science students going into medicine, it's less common for people to do it the other way around, the way I'm doing it, where you start in medicine and then you go into engineering. Engineering itself as a a second specialty is relatively unusual, but it's very common, particularly in my area of critical care, for people to do further study. So often people will go on and do master's degrees or PhDs in uh, critical care medicine or related fields. So things like public health masters or masters in statistics. So the clinician researcher is, as I said, becoming much more common. It's something that they've had in the UK and the US for many years. It's relatively new in Australia, but it's people are getting more excited about being able to be what they call a boundary crosser. So someone who can actually take ideas from two distinct fields and combine them to come up with new strategies, new ideas and new ways of approaching problems. The biomedical engineering thing is relatively unusual, yeah.
1: It sounds pretty exciting though, like it sounds like you would have a unique lens with which to look at these two different fields and yeah, as you said, like bring together things and to, through that kind of fusion come up with new ideas.
0: Yeah it, it is really interesting I mean I am still studying i still at university for the biomedical engineering and I haven't really had a chance yet to apply it uh, next year is going to be my final uh, year of study and that's when I start to really be able to do some of those projects but I have noticed what has i been working and studying at the same time that i do start to think about things differently i do start to look at problems and go hang on this is not this is not a one off issue this is actually a, a systemic problem or it's something that we could solve by changing the way that we do things or by using some new technology and i found that really interesting to be able to look at problems from a different perspective and hopefully in the future i'll be able to actually look at a problem and go about solving it, which is what I'm excited about and what I wanted to do with the biomedical engineering.
1: That sounds really exciting. And I want to come back to that in a little bit. But firstly, I think what our listeners need to hear a little bit about is what does an average day at work look like for you?
0: My work at the hospital, I come in early in the morning and we sit down with a team there's usually a junior doctor like me, someone who's on the training program to become a clinical uh, intensive care specialist, and then a consultant who's a fully qualified intensive care specialist. And we get together as a team along with the nursing staff and a pharmacist, and we take handover from the person who's worked over the night before. So, one of the things about intensive care medicine is that there is nursing staff and doctors available 24-7, 365 days a year. we will then go and review each of the patients that are in our section of the intensive care unit and determine what is going wrong with them, how they're progressing in their journey, and what needs to happen during that particular day. So if there's, there needs to be any tests done, if there needs to be any procedures done, and then try and coordinate those things. We'll then have a bit of a break, hopefully, and then go on for the rest of the afternoon, trying to trying to get all of those things done. So that might be coordinating with surgical teams about transferring a patient to theatre. It might be performing a procedure on a patient, for instance, doing a lumbar puncture or inserting a, a large uh, line called a central venous catheter into one of their veins in order to give them medication. Or uh, it may be trying to do some tests or further studies on the patient to work out what's going on with them. During that time, we also have to, or during the entire day, we also have to be aware of what's happening with all of our patients because they can rapidly change. Within minutes, someone can can be going from relatively stable to, oh dear, they're going to die in front of me if I don't do anything very, very quickly. So we have to be aware of what's going on with all of our patients And be on top of any changes that are happening with them. And that's, yeah, that's the main thing about my job.
1: And then I'm assuming like at the end of your shift, you'd probably be sort of packaging up all that information and everything that you've done throughout the day and handing that off onto the evening team?
0: Yes, exactly. The one thing that I didn't mention before is one of the really important jobs, particularly now during COVID times, is communicating with families. Communicating. Often our patients are extremely unwell. Uh, we often have patients who are completely unconscious or in induced medical comas, and they're on a ventilator, on a dialysis machine, and they're very, very unwell. They are not able to communicate with their families, or if they are able to communicate, they're often quite sick and really don't understand what's going on. So a really important part of our job is sitting down with families, speaking to them about what's happening, explaining to them what's going on, but also having a lot of discussions about what they want to happen and what what is the likelihood of what are the outcomes of this particular problem with this patient. Because unfortunately a lot of our patients are going to die. It's part of the job and that's a really important part of our job.
1: Yeah, is making sure that that, that part of the process and the transition is done I guess, with dignity and also keeps everyone informed.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's often very overwhelming for people, even medical people coming into the intensive care unit. It's overwhelming. You have a lot of machines, a lot of alarms, a lot of noises, a lot of lights. It's It can be really overwhelming for people. So being able to sit down and communicate and, and let people know what's going on, asking them if they have questions, making sure they understand is really important.
1: Are you able to give us an idea of how many patients you have at a time? Like at the moment, my head is full of about, you've got like 40 beds, they've all got flashing lights, they've got sort of like a red light above them that says something bad's happening with this patient. And maybe there's like some annoying beeping noises. How many people are under your care? Well, we have a very large unit
0: where I work. So we have Normally, in non-COVID times, we have about 53 beds available. Usually, we don't have all of those full. At the moment, we've extended to, I think, 65 beds. Again, not all of them are full. Each team of three doctors will look after between about 8 and 13 patients. 13 is a lot for us because of how sick they are it's really important that we don't have too many patients so we can focus on each one and make sure they're getting everything done that they need to have done. Um, yeah, so as I said, usually about eight to 13.
1: And I imagine even if they were healthy patients, like that's a lot of people's information to keep in your head at any one time.
0: It is, it is. And that's why we have so, we have so much focus on the what we call the handover process, where we communicate what's being happening with each patient to the next doctor who's coming on after us. So there are handovers every morning and every evening, and often there are multiple handovers. The the consultant will hand over to the next consultant, and then the the junior team will hand over to the other junior team. And that's a really important part of our job is communicating what's going on and trying to keep all of that information up to date and current uh, accurate, I should
1: say. I feel like you've sort of touched on a lot of this just then, but are you able to articulate some of the like really specific skills that you need to do your job well, but also that are different to say other medical staff, additional skills that you need to have to be doing this job?
0: Yeah. So uh one of the I've talked about this a lot, but one of the really important skills that you can have in my job is being able to communicate well. We often act as coordinators for patients. They often require input from a lot of different medical teams. So they might have orthopaedic surgeons, they might have neurosurgeons, they might have the respiratory team, they might have the endocrinology team all involved in their care. So a lot of that is about coordinating and, and communicating with all those different people. You also have to be quite organised to keep on track of what happens with each of these individual patients. Other things are you need to have quite a good knowledge of medical problems, but particularly medical problems when people are really, really sick, because when people are really, really sick, the body behaves in quite a different way to when people are just a little bit sick. Other things are you need some good procedural skills. So one of the skills that's becoming really important in my job at the moment is being able to use an ultrasound machine. Over the last few years, ultrasound has become a really, really important tool for us to be able to do a lot of procedures. So, for instance, I talked about putting in a central venous catheter, which is a large tube that we put into people's veins to give them drugs. We use an ultrasound machine to be able to insert that into a vein so we can see what we're doing. We also use ultrasounds to look at lungs to see whether there's too much fluid in the lungs. We do echocardiography, which is ultrasound of the heart to see if the heart is functioning well. So that's one of the procedural clinical things that we need to be able to do. Other skills are being able to have a lot of, well, I suppose it's not a skill, empathy, and the ability to talk to families. We get we get patients and, and families who are experiencing the very worst that they can imagine. We have people who were fine one day and then were involved in a massive car accident the next. So being able to, to talk to families and hear what they want to say and be able to explain to them what's going on is really important.
1: I feel like one of the other skills that you might need to have, like it sounds like there's a A lot going on, and it it could be a very emotionally charged environment as well as a very intense environment with a lot of different things happening at a time. And it sort of sounds like you'd need to be able to keep a cool head, if we can call having a cool head a skill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They talk a lot in my field. We we talk about critical care being intensive care, anesthetics, and the emergency department. They talk about the importance of resilience and being able to as you said, keep a cool head in a really emergency situation. And that is something I think you don't necessarily come in with. I think it's something that you can develop while you've been there. I mean, I definitely didn't. I didn't freak out when I first started having massive things happen, but I didn't really know what to do. And I felt a little bit overwhelmed, particularly when you have someone in front of you who went into cardiac arrest, for instance, their heart stopped and, the monitors are going off and the alarms are going off and the nurses are running around saying, you know, we need to do something immediately. That was really overwhelming when I first started, but definitely when I've gone through it uh, over the last few years working in the intensive care, it's something that I've gotten a lot better at, of being able to look at the situation and go, what's going on? What are the first things that you need to do? What are the things that absolutely happen to happen right now? And then Uh, how to fix the problem. Uh, And one of the things, one of the challenges about intensive care medicine is you don't have the time in many cases to sit back and say, okay, let's analyze the situation. You have to act immediately and then try and put in some, in place some measures to allow you to be able to sit back. You don't have the time initially to say, why has this heart, person's heart stopped? You may have your inclinations or you may have some idea of why something's gone wrong, but you have to act immediately. You don't have time to test. You don't have time to think about the problem. You have to, you have to really act quite quickly. And that is something you have to learn. Some people are better at it than others initially, but it, it is something that you, you develop working in the field as well.
1: Yeah, for sure, and presumably with experience and exposure to a range of different high-intensity events, you'd get more and more confident and just have that sort of automatic reflex response sort of build up for different events over time.
0: Absolutely, and they do do a lot of training to try and help us with those situations. So we do a lot of simulation-based training where we have an area in the hospital set up like an intensive care room, but it has a dummy in it. And it, the, it's the entire environment is a simulation room. We get trained to do those
1: things. That's really good to hear. I'm glad they're not just like sending people in straight from uni.
0: No, no, very, very much not. And particularly where I work, there's always lots of people around Uh, who can help you and we have some extremely experienced doctors and nurses our nurses are some of the best in Australia and they are incredibly experienced and they know a huge amount uh, and you, you can learn a lot from them
1: it's sounding like teamwork is also a really important part of this job as well
0: yeah absolutely we uh we work really closely with as I said other medical teams but as part of our ICU team, we'll have the doctors as well as a pharmacist. We'll have a lot of nursing staff who are there to support the team and the entire group of patients in our area. So we often have nurse specialists in a particular area. For instance, we have a trauma nurse specialist, we have a burns nurse specialist, and then we'll often have specialised nursing staff looking after particular types of patients. We also have a really big allied health team, so we work very closely with physiotherapists, we work with dieticians, we work with orthotists, which are the people who fit collars and all sorts of uh, braces for injuries. Uh, we work together with, it's not just the medical side, you also have the cleaners and all of the orderlies and all of the ward support people. It's a really, really big team and commu- being able to work in that big team is a really important part of it.
1: How have you ended up in this position? Like what was your path from school to ending up being in such an integral part of our healthcare system?
0: Well uh, when I was a kid I was a little bit silly and I jumped off the monkey bars at primary school and I Classic mistake. <laughs> and I fell backwards and I broke both my arms. And I ended up in cu- having casts on both of my arms and I needed surgery. I had a, a displaced fracture, uh, meaning the, the bones had moved and I needed to get surgery to put them back in place. It was my first real interaction with the health system and I had a fantastic orthopedic surgeon who's still around actually. Uh, I keep hearing his name but I haven't met him since and I looked at him and I went he has the coolest job in the world. He was really lovely and he showed me all the x-rays and when I was very scared about going in for surgery and I was at the Royal Children's and all of the staff were fantastic about showing me what things were and why they were doing things and I thought this is amazing I want to do this so for years as a kid I said I wanted to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon like my surgeon and I went into high school thinking that and then I started exploring it more as a potential career throughout high school I kept deciding yes this is what I want to do and so when I got to year 12 I looked at applying at every medical school in Australia that I could and I did I applied I think for seven or eight medical schools and I got into one and I went and did medical school at Monash University and I really liked the first couple of years get that and then I found, the last few years of medical school pretty hard. But I kept going and I eventually did internship at one of the major hospitals in Melbourne. I still thought I wanted to be an orthopaedic surgeon. I'd done a couple of rotations in that in medical school. And so I did an internship and then I became what we call a surgical resident, which is a very junior doctor in surgery. And I did that for a couple of years. Firstly, at the the hospital in Melbourne. Then I went up to a hospital in North Queensland being a surgical resident. And in North Queensland, I was working as an orthopaedic resident for a number of months and I realised I really didn't like it. (laughs) I really liked the actual surgery. Orthopaedic surgery is a lot of fun. It's a lot of carpentry. It's a lot of uh, using screws and and nails, and sores, and it's really, really, it is very brutal, it is very bloody, it is full-on surgery. It's a great field because you can you can literally change people's lives with the type of surgeries that they do. Doing hip replacements, doing knee replacements, they are so satisfying to do because you have people who couldn't walk and who had a really poor quality of life, and then you give them the surgery and suddenly they can function again. So I love that aspect of it. But I found political issues around surgery and around particularly orthopaedics. And I just felt that I didn't love it enough to be able to put up with some of those things. And so I decided I'm not going to do this. And I didn't, I didn't really know what to do because I said, you know, I've been wanting to be an orthopaedic surgeon since I was 10. What do I do now? And I happened to have been given a rotation in cardiothoracic surgery, so heart and lung surgery. I loved it. I thought this is fantastic. I want to do this. I had a fantastic mentor at the time who said to me, Look, cardiothoracic surgery is a really, really hard profession to get into. It's it's really, really difficult to get the training that you need to do it well. And it's basically deciding that you want to devote your entire life to your career there's no real opportunity to have a life outside of cardiothoracic medicine particularly when you're training and this mentor said to me look I think you should try intensive care I'd never really considered I'd, I'd literally done a week of intensive care as a medical student and thought not really for me but th- I really respected this mentor and I was like I'm going to listen to them I applied for a job at this major hospital. And luckily, luckily, they had a position. And so I went and did intensive care and I thought, hey, this is fantastic. This is really interesting medicine. You get a combination of these really difficult puzzles of what's going on with patients combined with the ability to do procedures, combined with these really tricky ethical problems and this ability to talk to families and and patients. And I thought, "This this is really great. But I'd always had an interest in technology and how it influences medical care. And I'd thought about doing further study when I thought about doing orthopedic surgery in developing new prosthetics and new hip replacements and knee replacements and things like that. So I'd always thought about doing further study. But when I started doing intensive care, I looked at it and I said, this is a perfect opportunity to go and learn about technology because intensive care medicine is all about technology. You know, we have monitors, we have m- machines, we have different medical imaging, you know, we use MRI machines, we use CAT scanners, we uh, do procedures on people and put in different implants. So I thought this is a great opportunity to go and learn and combine two different skill sets. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now.
1: So that sounds like it's a very indirect path you had what a lot of like our schools and our careers teachers want us to have as young people, which is like a really clear vision of what we want to do. Further down the track, you've actually pivoted and found something that's even more rewarding for you. Would that be sort of fair to say?
0: Yeah, I think that's quite true. I think one of the problems, particularly in medicine, is that we get put on a track. So what happens when you do medical school is people it's it's kind of like high school and that people ask what kind of doctor you do you want to be all the time and i always had a ready answer but Then once you finish medical school, you do internship, which is a year of training where you have to, by requirement of the government, you have to do a little bit of surgery, a little bit of medicine, a little bit of emergency and a couple of other rotations uh, to get a little bit of experience on the whole hospital system. And then you're encouraged to choose whether you want to go down the the physician career or whether you want to go down the surgical career or whether you want to something different like obstetrics and gynecology and then from there you go into these these streamlines of if you're a physician you go and do what's called basic physician training and then you decide that oh you want to be a cardiologist or you want to be a respiratory physician and you end up doing that training program and each program takes it depends on what type of specialty that you decide to do but they usually take between three and six years and you can get on these tracks Uh, and and go down this path, and you get kind of locked in almost to these tracks. And I really, I rebelled against that, particularly when I decided I didn't want to do orthopaedics anymore. I decided that I didn't want to lock myself into training, and then I was scared that it was going to happen again, that I would do several years of training in one particular area and then decide I didn't like it. So that made me decide to go down a different path. I should say a lot of my friends from medical school also decided to do different things. Uh, I had a friend who went through medical school, did a couple of years of working as a doctor and then decided he didn't like it at all and left and became a management consultant and now does uh, advice on healthcare policy. I had a friend who went down the path of being an anaesthetist and is has become a fully qualified anaesthetist but on the background, he's been inventing things uh, in his bedroom and he's been coming up with ideas for all sorts of different devices and 3D printing them. And I've been really lucky in having a group of friends who have, all, a lot of whom have kind of rebelled against the path that has been laid for them. It gives you a lot more confidence in saying, I don't want to do something traditional.
1: Which is fantastic to hear and it's so kind of exciting to hear all these people who could have just stuck to what in like medicine's obviously challenging but it it would have presumably been easier for them if they'd stuck on that track instead of like experimenting with all these other options and hopefully they're finding their lives a whole lot more rewarding by mixing and matching different bits of different careers and creating something new and awesome themselves.
0: I think one of the good things about medicine as a career is that it does open up a lot of opportunities. As I said, you do tend to go down a track uh, and that can be a little bit difficult to go against the, the flow, so to speak. In medicine, you have the opportunity to do a huge range of things. So if you decided that you wanted to do more public health medicine, you can do epidemiology, you can do healthcare innovation. It's really an opportunity to to explore a whole different range of things that you don't have to fit into a mould. I really like that about medicine.
1: And that is so fantastic to hear. What is something that like really, really excites you about going to work and actually like helps you get out of bed and go into the office, so to speak?
0: I think the biggest thing is really... You're seeing the really, really sick patients uh, who everyone is convinced are going to have a bad outcome who do really well. I had a patient, I walked into the unit and there were two doctors standing there pumping blood into them because they were bleeding so much. This particular patient ended up needing about 120 units of blood litres and litres of blood they they lost their entire blood volume five or six times and this patient had every complication that you could imagine and day after day it was really hard actually coming into work and hearing what had happened to this person in the last few hours you know whether they'd had to be rushed back to theatre or whether they needed to go on a dialysis machine because their kidneys had failed or something like that. The patient was in the unit for many months, uh, I think for about six months. And so many times came minutes away from dying and then they got better. And I was astonished. We knew after about three months that they were going to do well, uh, but they still needed quite a lot of care. And it was really, really fantastic to see this person who was so close to dying end up doing so well. and I think that those are the moments where you go this is this is why I do what I do. The other times when one of the things that I find really rewarding about my job is when you can let people have a, a good death and that might sound a little bit perverse, but often, we can kind of keep someone going long enough for their family to say goodbye, and sometimes that can be important and and really rewarding. So I, I remember another patient who, again, was incredibly sick but had an unsurvivable problem. There was a family member who was flying in from overseas, and we worked really, really hard to keep the patient alive long enough for this person to come in and say their goodbyes and that was really challenging and really emotionally difficult but it was really rewarding let this person's relatives say goodbye to them. So being able to help people through these really difficult times whether it's a fantastic outcome and obviously we always hope for those fantastic outcomes whether it's a good death that's what I find rewarding about my job.
1: And I think for a lot of people in careers where you don't sort of face death or anything that might be a bit challenging to think about and consider but I can just imagine how powerful that would be like even though something's sad you can still have something sad in a in a in a better way than in a worse way
0: yeah absolutely I mean I think one of one of the things that my job has taught me is how precious life is being able to help people through help families through help patients through this really difficult time, whether it ends up being a good or a bad outcome is just super rewarding.
1: Have you got any advice for like, if there's a young person listening to this, who's considering whether it's just medicine in general or intensive care specifically, is there any advice that you'd like to give them or to anyone at medical school as well, of course?
0: To the young person who is thinking about a career in medicine, I would say it's not like the movies, uh, and it's definitely not like TV. Uh, I was a little bit naive when I was in high school, and I watched all of the television programs. And I was a little bit disappointed when I got to med when I got to med school, and when I actually started working, that it was not at all like on the television. <laughs> there are definitely some times where it's very exciting, but ninety nine percent of the time it's very boring, and a huge amount of the work is just paperwork, and it's important, but it is boring to do (laughs) and paperwork does not make good television it does not uh I'm sure some people would get really into it but yeah no it's it doesn't doesn't make good television having said that I think medicine is a really good career well it's interesting a lot of my friends say that they would recommend people stay away from it and I am the opposite I really would if you if this is what you think you want to do go for it there's so many opportunities in medicine to do all sorts of different things, and you can really find your passion if you're if you like solving puzzles, you might like pathology. If you're a real people person, you might like psychiatry. You might like general practice. I would definitely say if that's what you want to do, go for it. I would say though that it can be incredibly challenging. It is sometimes a really tough job. You do deal with things like death. You deal with things like severe illness. You do have to give people, in some cases, terrible news. A lot of my fellow doctors are pretty diva-ish and you do have to deal with these big personalities. I mean, every job has those big personalities, but I feel like medicine attracts a few more of them. It It can be really hard. You do work really long hours in many cases. So don't go into it thinking it's all going to be sweetness and light. The other thing is, don't go into it if you want to make money. A lot of people think going and being a doctor, you're gonna you're gonna make a lot of money. You do make really good money. I can't complain. But you're gonna work really hard for it. And if you want to make 1000000000s you you're better off going and do business or something like that. <laughs> the other, in regards to people who are at medical school, what I would say is, definitely don't judge the specialty by the time that you spend in in medical school. For instance, I I absolutely hated intensive care, I think, when I first did it in medical school, and I completely wrote it off as a career. And I've come back and I love it now. I think it's really easy in medical school to, to experience something for a short time and go, oh, this is not me. This is not my career. But I would say, give it another go. Try out things, particularly once you're up a bit further in training once you've left internship and you're in the early residency there's a really good opportunity to actually see what that specialty is like because you really don't get a good feel for it in medical school.
1: And I think that's true for a whole lot of things whether it's at school or at high school it's very difficult to get an image of what a job is actually like until you actually get into it and I think having these little windows like what you've provided here is so valuable to people who are interested in this as a career but also who just might be sort of like curious about what on earth actually happens.
0: Absolutely yeah we definitely give things a second go
1: it's is my advice. And would you give the same advice like if you've had a bad experience in one hospital does that necessarily transfer across to other hospitals Say you have a bad experience in a country hospital and you come back into the city, whether it's a much bigger, differently resourced hospital, is it worth then giving that thing a go again?
0: I would try and, if you really hate something, I would try and work out what you hate about it. If it was the people around you, I would say absolutely give it another go. If you have a bad team, it doesn't matter what job you do. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're an engineer, if you're a teacher, if you work in a factory the people around you have enormous impact on how your experience of that thing is. And if you ha- and as I said, you do tend to attract really big personalities in medicine. If you have a really bad experience, I would say try and think about whether it is the people around you that made that experience difficult or whether it was the job itself. So for instance, say you did surgery of some kind and you really didn't like the experience, It may be that you really didn't get along with the people around you, or it may have been that you you didn't enjoy the experience of uh, getting up at 5am and then working until 11pm. It might have been that you really didn't like sitting in clinic for hours on end, seeing patient after patient after patient. It may have been that you didn't didn't like the experience of rushing off to theatre all the time. If that's what you don't like about it, then it's probably the job. And every you know surgical team is going to work really long hours. It's part of the job. But if it's so maybe that's what you're not liking about it. So I try to sit down and think, what is it that I haven't enjoyed?
1: I think that's really good advice because it's so easy to get turned off. The whole of something. And if you can sort of dissect it and work out which was the element that was the problem for you, not only can you move forward with more confidence of knowing this is something that I'm going to avoid, but you're also not avoiding other things which may have actually been good for you under different circumstances.
0: Absolutely. I had experience where I was in a more supervisory, mentory role for some junior doctor's. And I had a particular person who I was working with who had an absolutely miserable time. We were doing a surgical rotation and this this poor doctor really, really struggled every day. Surgery is often really fast paced. It's about getting everything done very, very, very quickly. It often can be a little bit cursory. You, you don't spend the time going through all the details. And this particular doctor was incredibly detail oriented. It was really hard for me to watch that because they lost their entire confidence over the weeks that I worked with them. And they started doubting whether they should even stay a doctor. And the thing is that that's just surgery. <laughs> that's what surgery is like. And I eventually took this doctor aside and said, A, I think you need to speak to someone because you're clearly struggling. And B, just because you're not a good surgical doctor does not mean you're not going to be a fantastic other type of doctor. She could have been a fantastic GP or a pathologist or a spiritual physician. Yeah, it can be be really hard sometimes, uh, but recognising what your strengths are is really useful. And if she could recognise that being detail-oriented was an important part of how she practised medicine and then try and seek out specialties that would play to those strengths.
1: Yeah, she could have been very happy. Have you got anything else you would like to share, anything we haven't touched on in the last couple of questions that you would just like to throw in there for anybody?
0: I would kind of come back to the idea that I think it's really easy, particularly now in the way that we think about success, to lose your confidence and to become very obsessed with your perception amongst your peers and to have that, you know, the classic imposter syndrome. And that's really, it's rife in the medical world. And I would say there are going to be people who, unfortunately, you're going to struggle with it's really important to not let those people determine your own self-worth and to have confidence in what you do and know that what you do is valuable. And I would say that it's really important to look after each other, to look after your colleagues, to look out for your friends, to look out for the people you're working with and notice when people are having a tough time and to notice when people are struggling. I've definitely had periods where I've really had a hard time at work and I've been so fortunate to have people around me who have been so supportive Uh, and I think that's really, really important Um, and to not let, as I said, not let someone else's opinion or someone else's criticism alter your feeling of self-worth. Yeah, so I would just say that.
1: I think that's amazing advice for everyone pretty much. And it makes me think we should do an episode at some point in imposter syndrome because it's it's rife in so many industries and I think a lot of young people probably aren't aware of it and then suddenly it sort of punches you in the face and you're like, oh, okay, this is a thing.
0: I'm going to say uh, I think it's particularly women who are affected by it, not, not that men can't have it. I think that it, it affects a lot of people, but women in particular, maybe they just own up to it more. But I've had a lot of colleagues say that they feel like they don't belong and they feel like they don't, have the right to be here and someone's going to call them out on it and I don't know whether that's just because women talk about it more or whether they experience it more
1: yeah I think it's it's something that like the whole world benefits from From more of us talking about to be honest yeah and just just to wrap up have you got a shout out first anyone is there anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to at the moment
0: Absolutely. I would like to give a virtual high five to all of the support staff that we have in our intensive care unit. We're going through COVID times at the moment and we have been very fortunate as doctors and nurses to get a lot of support from the community. But I think we don't see as much support for all of the people that help in healthcare and that's the cleaners who are in some cases putting themselves at very high risk to clean up the COVID rooms there's the, the ward support people, there's the orderlies, there's the, the people who do all the cleaning of the equipment and sterilisation of the equipment, there's the, all the administrators who are ordering all of the equipment that we need. You know, there's this huge number of people who go into getting a hospital to function well and they really need that recognition and I would just like to say thank you so much to those people who do a fantastic job and of, often don't get recognised for it.
1: So true. And I can't give a better high five than that. So I'm just going to double that one because it's so valuable and more people, like there's so many people working on front lines at the moment and we need to give a virtual high five to all of them because obviously a a real high five is not really appropriate right now. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Stay away from them. (laughs) (laughs) Stay away of it. Like, yeah, I'll take that virtual high five. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us and so much for a beautiful shout out and for sharing your story. It's been an absolute delight having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's over. (laughs) If you like our podcast, you're a little ripper and you should follow us on Instagram at avid underscore research. If you have a question or someone you think we should interview, feel free to drop us an email at avid, A-V-I-D, dot coms c-o-m-m-s at gmail.com because avid research was already taken